and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Bronco Mendenhall is one of the more interesting sports coaches I've interviewed on this podcast, and we've certainly had a lot of sports coaches on this podcast. And what makes Bronco interesting is not that he was the head coach of Brigham Young University's football program from 2005 to 2015, and not that he was the head coach of the University of Virginia's football program from 2016 to 2021. It's not that he went 135 and 81 and appeared in multiple bowl games with those programs. It's not even that he turned those programs around from losing seasons to winning seasons, and he's helped multiple players play in the National Football League. What makes Bronco so interesting is that he intentionally walked away from the University of Virginia football program to take a year off. He essentially has gone on sabbatical for this past year, 
and he did it in the prime of his career. He was 55 years old when he stepped away, and things were really going well at University of Virginia from certainly the outside looking in. But Bronco's going to share why he walked away in our conversation today and what he's learned from taking a year off from football. And a lot of people walk away from football and then they retire. But Bronco's not done yet. He still has a masterpiece that he's working on that he's hoping to craft as early as next football season. So Bronco is someone who cares deeply about developing young people, and he's leveraging football as the best vehicle that he's found to be able to do that. So this conversation is real, it's genuine, it's authentic, it's unique, it's different. And I think all of those words would also describe Bronco. At his core, he's a learner. He's someone that is constantly growing and is super curious to learn from others. And so he's taken this time off to really dive deep into what he wants to create when it comes to a college football culture and how he can impact young people. So here is Coach Bronco Mendenhall. Coach, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Really excited to chat with you for a number of reasons. But when I asked you, like, what do you love talking about? You lit up. Like, you got, I could hear it in your voice. And you said, you know, I love that football is a vehicle for me to help young people develop. And you said, you know, I know that there's an entertainment portion of this. I'm from Washington, DC last night, the Washington commanders played. I love watching football. Uh, So I'm with you on the entertainment piece. And then there's an economic piece that both you and I have, have benefited from having worked in sports, but can you talk a little bit about the development of young people and why that is at the core of your mission and, and why you, why you love coaching? Yeah, I I think it stems from a story uh, that might be best used to illustrate as an answer to your question. Early on in my coaching career, I had just become a head coach and had really no aspirations to become a head coach. And here I was in this role, and I'm an introverted person by nature and a deep thinker and prefer solitude. And here's this world of visibility that just is 24-7. And then with all the comments and feedback that people have about how you're doing your job, right, and the access that they have to you and yeah, I was struggling with making sense of all that as to why would I even do this? And I really hadn't framed clearly enough yet the why component uh, as as a leader and from the head coaching spot in particular. Anyway, um, I, I I sought to to gain clarity around that and went to a, um, a seminar and there was three other head coaches there. You would know them all. I won't share their names, but nationally prominent. And one of the comments that really struck me is there was a coach that while he was holding up the crystal ball and confetti falling after a national championship that was just earned while he's holding up the crystal ball and the confetti's coming down, he says in this seminar, this intimate seminar, there has to be more than this. That's what he's thinking to himself while that's happening. And what I found is during that same stretch, the team I was leading, we were 11 and two and 11 and two and then 10 and three and 11 and two. And I was just not seeing how this was making any sense in terms of the trade-off and the lifestyle versus uh, put it this way, the purpose wasn't deep enough. And yet- Were you not happy in during those years? Exactly. Meaning that um, there, there was success from an outcome perspective, but there was an impact of lasting value or an emphasis on impact 
in any lasting and substantial way that was resonating with me. And I was like, this, this isn't deep enough. This is hollow. Uh, the, the wins and the accolades by themselves aren't even close to being enough to make this valuable. And so I just started thinking much more intentionally about what is the value of, of this game? Why does it exist? And then I started thinking about, well, the game can't be played without the people. <laughs> and the people then became everything. And, and seeing each individual one by one uh, with divine potential and the chance to become, then how in the world in this window of time that I have of four to five years with them, could I aid them and help them through this daily interaction in a manner that would add uh, quality to their futures? And make that brighter and more meaningful than anything they could have done if they didn't play the game in our program. And so, so much of the backdrop right now, as you know, uh, and I would I would argue that probably every decision right now in the world of college football starts with finance. Uh, and that would I'll, I'll be challenged on that, I'm sure. But I would argue that that is the starting place currently. And the finance then is really supported by um, the entertainment right? Because of the, the money for people to watch and enjoy. And so I, I recognize that pull and that friction. But now think about the college game as you were talking about the Washington Commanders. And I had a brother that played for the Redskins when they were called the Redskins, a second round pick and watched him play for them. And so I was thinking, okay, here's the backdrop now of college football, which is higher education. And so there's higher education, which inherently is the development of young people against the backdrop of finance and entertainment. And then who is in the middle of that entire cluster of friction points? And that's the person, not only the leader, but the young people and helping them make sense of how important that outcomes are and how real those things are versus the identity of and that not being driven only by outcome. And that separation, I think, is really critical to mental health, but also human identity. And so having uh, a fierce passion for performance and intentionally becoming, I think is, is amazing. And it's facilitated by outcome, right? I'd love to say, right, momentum happens when there's outcome. However, if all uh, of identity is measured only by outcome, that becomes a dangerous space to live. And then we're kind of giving away our autonomy to others on what they think based on how we perform. And, and so I work hard on capturing what I just call and, right? This amazing development of identity and pursuit of um, kind of this divine potential while having the worldly success and all the things necessary to keep your job, perform in a manner that you'd like to, and finding that balance in between, which is pretty tricky. Do you think that Power Five college football is the best place to develop young people? Mm. I think it's really a great question, and and I wrestle with that currently. Uh, when I was the head coach at the University of Virginia, which was the past six years, I intentionally sought Virginia because, right, I love programs that um, value something in addition to football. And so I was the head coach at Brigham Young University for 11 years, which is a private faith-based institution who also really cares about football. Virginia was struggling football-wise, but man, did they love the academic component, right, and the leadership development. Um, but I was drawn there because I wanted to prove, quite frankly, to myself and maybe others that you could, at the Power Five level, have a model 
that was kind of running contrary or into the wind of outcome only without sacrificing outcome while focusing on something else. And I would say that that approach is an outlier right now, not only in the hiring practices, but in the player or the program development models. And that doesn't mean there aren't great people leading programs, but let's face it, the compensation and reward structure, and I'm not only talking monetarily, I'm talking attention capital <laughs> comes from success on the field. Anything that you do in addition to that, let's say an amazing community service program, the time and energy and effort put in that, let's say amazing um, academic performance, right? And all that, that take, let's, take, let's take amazing life skills. In addition, every one of those things takes additional time, energy, and resources to do in addition to playing the game. And so you start to see coaches and people drawn more to the FCS level, more to division two, more to the Ivy leagues that truly want that. I hate the idea of the concession. Mm. And I don't even know if the concession is the right word. I hate the idea that at the highest level of college football performance embedded right in the middle of that can't be the very best human development models that exist. And, and that to me is what I want. I was wondering where the friction was going to come from. Cause in my mind, I'm thinking, dude, go coach, go, go coach an Ivy league football program. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, last year during the pandemic, they shut down. They said, yeah. we're not playing and right or wrong. However you feel about that. That was them clearly saying, no, this doesn't come before our, our kids health. Right. Like they, they yeah. do prioritize it. And, and that's not to say there aren't, professional football players that come from the Ivies and that they don't have legitimate programs or I'm thinking like, go coach high school football or go, <laughs> go coach peewee football. I don't know how low you have to get to, to not find outcome driven coaches, but then I hear this rub. There it is. I hear, I want it all. No, I, I think we can do it. And there's like a belief that you can do it. Were you able to do it at Virginia? Were you able to do it at BYU? Even though you had those three years there where you weren't sure, do you feel like you were able to, to get that and that you were talking about? Here, here's the thing is how that's measured, I think is debatable. It was my intent from the moment I woke up to the time I went to bed every single day to try to provide a model that demonstrated and yes, you can. And some would view it, oh, yeah, this is working because we're winning. And others would look and say, oh, this is working uh, because of the other programs that these kids get access to. I, I view that all as how you measure it. And I don't think one can be the only measure. I think you have, it has to be measured in both. And yet, as you brought up power five, how is it truly measured? The top 25 rankings aren't based on the collective development of young people. They're based only on performance. I love the idea. If I'm one of those top 25 programs and have been many times, I just simply could not rest well with that unless I knew something else magical was happening with the young people in the program in addition to that. The reason I like that is because now you're talking about a platform and visibility to actually demonstrate uh, a more powerful way to live, which I believe. And so I, I hate the idea of having to concede this level because it, it's so all consuming on only on results that you have to just give away the other part. And I'm not for that. And so I, I, Personal crusade, maybe would be the <laughs> it might be the right thing, but I I want it all, and I would love to demonstrate and continue to demonstrate it can be done by intent, by design, uh, man, by organizational behavior, uh, by motives and relationships, but also amazing innovation scheme and strategy 
for those young people that do want that. And what I found over time, and this is going to be stereotypical in nature as I say it, uh, and so I'm not proposing this is one size fits all, but if you use the star model in recruiting currently, five stars meaning the best players, one star meaning those less capable, what I found um, in general is that the higher number of stars, the more they cared, uh, the more the less they cared about the development model, the more they cared only about football and wanted to align themselves right with a place. And so I'm not saying that's negative. What I found in the three star range is players that could be developed into right amazing uh, and possibly professional football players, but they actually wanted and were driven by other things in a more comprehensive manner. And so I bait back to your question of do I think that I did that or or was I doing that? I would answer yes, mostly because my clientele and those that were choosing me and I was choosing them chose they wanted that with this three star-ish kind of realm they were living in. And many had already chosen private schools, boarding schools, their families already chosen, right? They wanted academics and performance. Uh, and so we called those profile schools and they ended up, we were attracted to each other. Um, could there be a ceiling on that if all you're playing against is four or five? I think culture, innovation, leadership, and coaching goes a long way. Uh, and so there, therein was a space that I've chose to dwell. All right. So like a real question, uh, Alabama, Nick Saban decides to retire yeah. tomorrow. Alabama calls Brocko Mendenhall. They say, you're our guy. We want you to coach this team. I'm assuming that's not the place you want to go. Here, here's the, here's the way I would respond to that. I'm honored and flattered and, and so encouraged by the football success. Now here's my approach. What, and let's say that there wouldn't be one compromise made football wise, but in addition to that, not in place of, in addition to that, I'm going to focus on these other things. Is that what you want? They then, right, I'd, I'd frame it right back. Um, my commitment is to not only take the record and what's happening, but to expand and continue and grow that. However, in addition to, not in place of, will it be harder? Yep. More time? Yep. <laughs> more energy? Yep. Maybe more resources? Probably. But I want all of this too. Is that what you want? And if they, if that response is yes, shoot, sign me up for that. Cool. That, that's really helpful. And it's interesting because I had Tara Vanderveer on the podcast oh, yeah. last, and uh, we're going to get into your sabbatical because Tara has mm -hmm. built what you're talking about with Stanford women's basketball. She's a three-time you know, mm -hmm. national champion. I think they've been to the final four 13 times. But when she took that job, she came from Ohio State. And at the time, the the message was you can't win at Stanford because uh, the academics are too hard. You're limited in who you can get into the school. And she went toward that challenge. And Tara, I mean, I tried to like give her praise over the over the course of our conversation. She wanted none of it. Like she is a pure coach in the sense that it's all about her players. And when I say her players, yeah, she has 12 former players that are now coaching in college basketball. But more than that, she would talk about the doctors and the professor and the, the engineer and the lawyer. It was so clear during our conversation that she really cares about the whole person. And it's interesting because you look at basketball and you've got her on the women's side. Uh, you have Muffin McGraw at Notre, Notre Dame who built a powerhouse there. And then on the men's side, of course, Coach K at Duke uh, and Jay Wright at Villanova. And we've seen organizations that have taken, you know, 
really high academic programs and and built something. Tony Bennett at UVA. I mean, Lars Tiffany in lacrosse at UVA. And so it sounds like there's still some optimism from you that this it, that end idea is possible. And I'm not saying all of those programs are exactly the same, but the notion that it can't be done in football, uh, it seems like that's kind of silly. Like there, there should be some optimism about that. So I, I am, I'm not only an optimist, but I'm a realist at the same time. And I understand the challenges and, and every one of those people you mentioned Wow, do I admire and study and have learned from? And here, here's the the um, the possible differentiating point is just simply scope and scale, number of players, right? Uh, and that doesn't mean better or worse. I'm not saying that. This just means the scalability of 12 or 15 and 125, and and then the revenue and pressures that come with that are very similar, and yet. Football finances drive and really fund almost all of college athletics at each institution. And so while the value to me isn't different, the scope and scale is different, which then increases the challenges of then having a staff and an institution and alignment that want that. And when you when you have designed and intentionally built that, that gives you your best chance. And I uh, I love the success stories. Uh, of someone choosing, which which is my belief of Stanford or Virginia, amazing academic schools, and then saying, and that's not going to be the reason that we're not successful. In fact, it's going to be the reason we are successful because of the type of people that want that. Now, am I skilled enough as the leader to design and attract and build a program to accomplish that to me, it's not an issue of can it be done. The issue is how do I become the person to help it be done? And, and so it really reflects back to my own development as a, a person and hopefully then can transfer that to others or attract others to help me do that. And when maybe I do a good enough job, it will show it can be or someone else does a good enough job. But the idea that it can't, I, I just don't adhere to. It's, it's who's capable and who will work diligently enough in pursuit of that and man, will I celebrate when it is done. So I live in Washington, D.C. We're not far from Charlottesville. I've been down in Charlottesville. Beautiful place. Uh, amazing place to raise a family. You get kind of a little bit of everything down there. It's it's a really special community. We actually had on the mayor of Charlottesville, uh, obviously talk about some of the dark times that, yeah. that have occurred in, in Charlottesville. But for you, when you, when you resigned, it made news. I mean, it is a big deal because... It was a surprise uh, for pretty much everybody. Um, and and you were building this program that seemed to be on the way up. And I mentioned Tara because Tara in 2015 started taking a summer off where she'd go to the lake and rejuvenate herself and just play and be a kid again. Well, here you are doing something that I don't know too many coaches that say, hey, I'm going to walk away on my own volition, we've seen coaches have to walk away for other reasons, but you know, your athletic director wanted you to be there. Um, and you said, I want to take a year off because there's a unique, unique opportunity for me to connect with my wife and connect with myself. So how's it going? How's, how's this sabbatical life going for uh, you? I, I'm an avid reader and I seek peace and solace and contemplation and perspective, which is all difficult to, to fit into a normal um, division one and power five football head coaches job. 
but here, here's the reality. Uh, I, I think it made news because it's rarely done on someone's own terms. And, and here's the other thing is you, there's so much in the news now about buyouts. And I was making a, a large salary. And when you walk away, you forfeit the salary. And yet most of the news right now, when do you fire a coach and wait, there's a $40 million buyout or there's an $8 million buyout. All those things are real, which I think plays partly into the decision-making process. Part of my decision acknowledged, uh, am I authentic? And, and am I above or maybe uh, separate from the finances? And, and not that that is the reason to have done it, but hopefully there's an authenticity that was validated for anyone that was wondering. Um, it is real. The approach is real. The intent is real. And so how's it going? I'm 50 feet from Flathead Lake right now as we're speaking in Montana, building a home that was designed to be much like Tara, our summer place in football. The coaches, you get a little bit of time in July. And so for my kids, eventually my grandkids, this will be the place we gather. Um, 15 minutes away as horse property. That's how I grew up. And my kids and I are into team roping. And, and so by the end of November, our infrastructure for chapter two will be built and ready without an intentional pause um, to express my values of what really is important, not only personal renewal, but connection with my family, not only this year, but um, a place and a time set apart I don't know how to show them that I value them more than anything else other than, no, this, this entire year and for our future, we're going to design this place uh, that we'll always have and always be able to come to, to connect in a manner that um, we hope that uh, kind of uh, builds our posterity and our values as a family forever. And so, yeah, but dad, this is what about, well, I can always go back. Uh, However, when I go back, I wanted it to be with the perspective and the learning and the renewal and a relaunch that might even be more intentional. And so I've called it kind of our assault camp, where so this is, you know, if we were climbing Everest, we're not at base camp and we're not at the halfway point, but we can see the summit uh, as a family. Like if you and I were on this, this trek and now we're, we're checking supplies, we're making sure our rations are good, we're looking at the weather. We're double checking our maps and then we're going to go and we're not going to kind of kind of go. Uh, we're going to go more intentionally applying all the learnings that we've had up to this point, put those in the best use possible and and hopefully use that to propel us. Right. And give us even more momentum. And so, yeah, the perspective and renewal has been essential, but more essential than that is the reassessment of my values. And I've shared this story a couple of times, Brian, and I thought I would share it with you is it's been fun to, to, to view my phone and contrast it from uh, when I'm coaching and this year that I'm not. And see who calls and who doesn't, but hardly any people call, who texts and who doesn't, right? However they communicate. And what I found is very few administrators have called or texted, some very few fans called or texted. Most didn't have my number anyway, so that's not fair. Um, what the overwhelming and a majority of calls or texts have been are from the players, right? Former players and their wives or families. 
And so disproportionately, and I've, I've labeled those transformational relationships to the ones that aren't calling as transactional relationships, just two words that kind of came to me. And transformational is in the helping people become, right? Kind of going through state changes to reach their potential. So anyway, all these texts and, and calls come in from players and it didn't hit me at the beginning, but now I'm kind of on the back end of this year's time and looking and looking back and saying, what, what did those texts have in common? Not a single one has mentioned a game. Not, not, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked by this. Not one has mentioned a conference championship. Not one has mentioned a record. Uh, every single one has mentioned moments. Uh, coach, I remember, uh, I just come off if at BYU, I just came off my mission. I was reacclimating into regular life and you, you came and we visited in the locker room. And so there's these, there's these moments that are all relational. And so I was thinking, man, besides saying I want and amazing performance in the development of people, what I've realized is driving the individual relationship one-on-one -on -one is really what these kids have remembered. And it wasn't the outcome, it was the relations. And the relations were impactful because of the sense that I truly, or we truly connected and cared about one another. Now with 125 and then probably 50-ish staff members and other families, et cetera, in the organization, how much time? Well, you can't schedule that effectively, but what you can do is live intentionally in a manner uh, that you're present and aware and want to help and connect. And those that feedback, almost like uh, uh, going to your own funeral, like, except I'm still alive and seeing what they say, that has been so helpful to realize, um, yeah, you only get to do your job if you're successful at it. And it's, let's, let's face it, locker rooms when you win are fun and the weeks are better and there's smiles. And I love that part of it. But interestingly enough, um, after 17 years of being a head coach, the feedback from the guys that I've coached by players are all about the relational, the relational moments. And quite frankly, that was shocking to me. I expected maybe 50-50. Man, I still remember that game versus these guys. I still remember that bowl win. Coach, that year of eight, you know, 2015, that'll go down forever. I was expecting way more of those. And I haven't gotten any of those, which is shocking to me. There's an old Chinese proverb that I'm going to share with you because I think it'll resonate. It says, if you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody. Mm. I'm curious, how, how does that land with you? Um, it goes right to my heart. And it just, it just makes me smile and, and, and ponder and self-assess. I, I never feel as good as when I'm serving, right? When I'm actually helping others. And, and even in my, uh, the position I hold in our church, I've been called to help young men and we were just doing a service project and or chainsawing wood and stacking it and helping this person for the winter. And there are smiles everywhere and we're all sweating and it's hard, work, but we're all smiling. And, and there's a camaraderie that's galvanized by doing hard things together, but there's even a deeper level of gal galvanization, even if that's a word that happens when you're doing something hard for someone else, that then is a unifier that becomes uh, almost an unbreakable bond or what I would call uncommon. I would simply like there to be, and I'm not saying there's not, I would like more programs to focus on being uncommon, uh, not typical, but uncommon in the growth, development, and true achievement of young people 
in addition to what they're doing on the field, right? Not in place of, in addition to. And the challenge is it takes more. And so Tara, as you mentioned, all of a sudden, she, not all of a sudden, over time, she needed now a summer. Um, I need and needed a year. I didn't know how long I would take, but um, when you're when you're intentionally looking to do more, and I'm not saying better or worse, but when you're intentionally looking to do more, more is more and more the time, energy, and effort. And I believe you manage energy, not time. But when you're giving all you have to something you truly believe in, it's a great way to live, but also you have to think about sustainability. And what I believed is without this year, whether it's called a, a pause or whether um, it's called a sabbatical, um, I've just called it really renewal and contemplation. But now if you were to say, if you, if you line me up maybe next to another 56-year-old head coach that'd been in coaching 17 years and he hadn't paused, and I just had, and we say, ready, go, and the gun goes off in a 400 meters, I like my chances. When I like my chances become, in an 800. Go ahead. When did it become something real for you that this mm. would actually be something you could do? Yeah. Um, this decision was very sudden. Uh, we were playing our rival Virginia Tech in the last game of this year. Uh, four downs from the 12-yard line to score. And, and then there's going to be a bowl game and the cycle is just going to continue. And 16 of my 17 years as a head coach had been postseason eligible. That, that was just the cycle, right? That was just going to happen. And, um, but I realized during that series, something has to change. I felt it internally <laughs> and I can't describe it other than I felt it. And I said, this is not sustainable. I remember feeling and sensing that. And it was uh, Sunday the next night I talked to our athletic director and she was like, what? Um, I told my wife and she was like, what? And I, I just sat in that space till Wednesday and um, the prompting thought direction or feeling, right? Any name that you want to put to it or clarity was growing. And by Thursday, it was, um, I had a meeting with our president and he was like, no, what, like what, where, and why, and, um, and I have a difficult time explaining it, other than it seemed like to do the things and lead the way I wanted to lead, uh, that was going to be necessary, and then it became clear, so that was the beginning, and then it became clear, my sons, I have two on missions for my faith, my other son's gone, my wife and our empty nesters literally for the first time, and I was like, oh, that's another good reason, <laughs> oh, wait, now we're going to set up these properties and that's another good reason. And so the, the, the case for it kind of just kept building in such a rapid succession. Um, and next thing I know, um, here I am eight or nine months later, validated by um, and reassured by the decision. But I can't say there wasn't fear and I can't say there wasn't apprehension and I can't say there wasn't uncertainty because there was, man, at, at every turn. But yet there was um, this clarity that was come what may, this is, this is what's best. And, and um, wow, has that been a hard thing to describe? Even now I'm trying to describe it and it's very difficult to articulate it effectively. However, um, the perspective I have now, the clarity I have now, the renewal I've had now, and what's been fun too is to, to assess what impact did we have? And my wife, what I learned is she loves 
um, uh, being a partner with me in this work. And I didn't know 17 years, right? And it's a grind, but I didn't know. And I don't think she truly knew without us pausing, but I'm so cleared out. She loves partnering in this hard thing that we're doing of trying to help young people. And I love it. Are there things I don't love? Heck yes. The visibility and the trans or the, uh, not the transparency, the, the scrutiny and the, all that. Um, but the development part, we love that part to the point where I would like to do it again because that draw and this approach is something that ultimately we've named, my wife and I, is it, it captivated us. But You with, miss it. You miss, that's what I I'm miss, hearing from you. You miss mm -hmm. the ability to tangibly develop young people. And so if that was going to be my question, Hey, what are you missing right now yeah. that you're not getting from the yeah. time off from the pause from, you know, yeah. being with the horses on the ranch from being with your wife. It sounds like that's the piece that, that is still yearning. The, the, the singular most powerful piece and, and you're accurate is the daily interaction development and inclusion in the lives of young people to help make a difference impact. And whether it be a, a relational issue, um, with uh, a teammate or a girlfriend or an academic issue and uh, giving them access to my, my library or whether it's a faith-based issue and just to contemplate. I love the variety of things that come daily of trying to help young people sort out and make rhyme or reason of their futures and, and what might be available to them. And there are certainly things I don't miss, uh, but that component and then seeing their success, their smiles, and their, um, as well as their heartache when they don't have success and trying to help them uh, know how to handle that. I love all of that. And, I, and what I've learned too, and, and Brian, I don't, I don't know, um, I can't document this or say this. I'm not sure there's a more powerful platform to develop motivated learners and young people than the world of college athletics. And I've, I've had a chance to think about that a lot this past year. And man, arguably, it might be the most powerful transformational platform if intentionally used as such um, to help from. And so that's, that's also kind of being reassured from my, my pause. Well, I'll tell you, when, when I really was focused on working with athletes, I would work with anything from 10-year-olds to 35-year-olds, mm -hmm. right? So you've got, let's even go away from the 10-year-olds, high school athletes, college athletes, and pro athletes. And I always said this, that the high school athletes for me, I had a hard time with because they didn't have any self-awareness yet or, or not as much developed self-awareness. A lot of them were thinking in a similar pattern to their parents. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would hear them sort of regurgitate things that they'd hear from their parents, but they also don't have that much time to contemplate in high school. Like they go to school, they go to practice they go home, they have dinner with their family if they're privileged and lucky enough to do that. Then they do homework and then it's rinse and repeat. So there's just not a lot of space to think. And then when I got working with pros, I found that they had had a certain amount of success that they had a way that had already worked for them. And so it was often hard to get them out of certain thought patterns because they had arrived. And so... Um, I, I would struggle sometimes with that level when I work with 18 to 22 year olds, generally speaking, um, there's something beautiful about the college experience because there is space. And that's mm -hmm. not to say they're not busy and they're not doing a lot, 
but they're walking through the quad or, uh, you know, they've got some time to just be or socialize or like there is something different. And by the way, their parents aren't in their ear, even though they might be texting, calling, whatever. They're making decisions for their own. Do they go to class or not go to class? And as much as football programs, and I've worked with football programs at the collegiate level, like to control all that and have people make sure that they're going to class, at the end of the day, they still do become, you're talking about men, um, they do start to grow and evolve and change how they're thinking. They're taking different classes and and they're just more open. And so I would imagine for you, is that the draw there too, to that demographic yeah. is the, the age and also from a brain development standpoint, just... Mm -hmm just from a physiological science standpoint, it's a beautiful time to sort of impact people's lives. It's, it's essential. And, and you've, you've captured it so well. Autonomy is the word. Um, they become more autonomous and I love helping them at the right level. So I love and will let them fail. It will not be a fatal failure, but there's so much to be learned from traveling a path to a certain point, failing and realizing and self-correcting and the powerful learnings without someone helicoptering before they stumble. And, and so, yeah, uh, someone that really cares will consider the, the magnitude of the stumble and, and either let that happen or not, right, based on, on outcome. But the autonomy to choose, to me, is the coolest part of this college age experience. And then to help these young people reconcile their choices um, and to help them make sense of that to, to be more uh, wisely directed the next time, not only by someone else, but um, self-aware, as you mentioned, right? That they're learning about that. And I had a, a, a cool experience that happened in a learning experience early on at Brigham Young University. I was doing a study for, as I took over the program, some kids were leaving or weren't managing the workload and their academics is a really a challenge. The faith component is, is rigorous as well as the football, which is competes at a high level. So there's a lot going on. And there was some, there were young people washing out of the program and, and, and uh, not succeeding. And I was, I did our own pilot studies trying to figure out what, what predictors, what are we missing? And so you mentioned as a high school age um, student, so here's class, right? And here's their sport. And then they go home for dinner and then their study. What we found is young people that were adding one other thing to that, that was hard, but also meaningful. They were making it. And so, for instance, in my faith, there's an, a, an early morning seminary program. It's like Sunday school before high school. And that, that means you're getting up at like five. And, and I'd start just looking at their attendance record. So this is something voluntarily that they're choosing to do. But what if then they're catching public transportation and that's like a 45 minute ride and they had 100 percent attendance, you know, and they did the other things you're saying. I was like, oh, OK, the chance that this is going to be a resilient, determined and or if there was after practice before homework, uh, they were working at the family restaurant for a couple hours. And those type of things started to be great predictors of um, increased expectations, but also direction and love from a family that was giving these kids a great chance. So what I learned kind of through uh, teaching as leadership and the Teach for America program is these, these young people that were doing a masterful job of teaching and having the most success, they never compromised the standards within the classroom timeframe. They thought that would actually be a disservice, but the outpouring of love before and after was at this huge level. 
And so the programs that I would like to run and run is the, the standards are uncompromising and probably exceeding that of many others. Yeah, but the outpouring of interest and love around that is just off the chart, which is why it, it's harder. What you're capturing is something called self-determination theory, yes. which yes. suggests like three components lead to a human who's determined competence, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. they know what they're doing and they're good at it. Autonomy, which you hit on, and I'm surprised yeah. I didn't come up with that word. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, and then the last one's relatedness, which is, I think, yeah. what you're, I think for you, it sounds like your faith has given you a lot of relatedness and feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself yeah. and feeling like you're part of a community. And especially in the Mormon faith, um, there is a communal element that mm -hmm. exists that's a big, big part of, I mean, I'm not Mormon, but I've worked with Mormon athletes yeah. and and spoken to Mormon leaders over the years, yep. that relatedness piece, I would imagine, especially at BYU was, was a big, big deal. It, it was a big deal. And there was a unity that came through that, that added a sense of purpose. Um, that was an additional, again, one of those and things at Virginia though, I loved, I loved, I loved being able to see people um, by their qualities, not by their faith or not by their skin color. It was so helpful to me to then have a brand new environment where I was just looking for the person, right? The, the qualities of who, rather than what the outside looked like. And, and that was so helpful for me to, to be able to re-emphasize that part. Back to the autonomy piece, just for a second, what I also learned in that little study, and this might be helpful to, I don't know, leaders or parents or um, any family that was relocating to the community where their son was coming to school, those young people struggled mightily. And, and I, so you're I'm saying I'm, when you would recruit them to BYU or UVA, mm -hmm. and then the parents would say, Hey, we're, we're going to actually relocate mm -hmm. so we can be closer to them mm -hmm. that actually harmed them, you know, in, in a, a way that they didn't think it was. It, it, exactly. And, and so the intent was pure and to be close, but what, what happened uh, um, in a large number of cases is, the, uh, the intervention of the family when things got difficult for the young person to, to save them before they had struggled. And, and there's, a, there's a sequencing there. And what I promised my team is I won't save you unless necessary, <laughs> right? And, and so they knew it would be like after all they could do, and then I would, I would help, but I was gonna let them struggle. And what I found when the families moved in most cases, is they were saving before the struggle. And so this, this level of development and reliance remained so strong that the true growth and autonomy never truly came to fruition. And it was just a, a unique perspective that I, I gleaned over time in watching that pattern and what, what was a great motive of being together and closer and family. All those things were great. But what I saw came with that was this, again, speed to save a little earlier than probably was necessary for the next stage of life for these kids as they were wrestling and struggling with their own beliefs, right? Um, their own interests and autonomy and how to manage that by themselves. And I worry sometimes that uh, in the current direction of maybe Power 5 football, uh, uh, that we might just be prolonging adolescence. We, because of all the structure we're providing and infrastructure and support that we're giving for the sake of, right, 
ensuring we have a team to play with and be successful with. Are we creating enough space though for those kids that are going to college and they're working? And you could argue that football is work, uh, but going to find a job and in addition to classes, there's still a little bit of difference there to me. Um, and I'm not sure that we're providing the same experiences of, of self-reliance and self-direction as to what um, we're really gonna do when football's over, knowing it takes almost everything to do it well, but man, are we just prolonging this youthful kind of saving mentality while they're going through their college experience and then here's the real world because of all the support we're giving or are we promoting the struggle and kind of self-determination to help them truly be ready for the world when it comes, whenever football is done. And so I wrestle with that uh, from a, a broader perspective with what I see. Well, and to your point, and we all know the studies now, like even if they are one of the lucky ones that gets to go play professional football, you know, three-year average, right? Like if they're lucky, it's like, okay, they play three years. Maybe if they're amazing, they play eight or nine, but it's just a short-term thing. And yes, they can make millions of dollars, but still, okay. So you're 30 years old and you've made $20 million. That's not a successful life. Like there's a lot left. And by the way, that money can go away if you're not smart and thoughtful. And we've all seen that. So it is, it's, it's interesting way of thinking about it is how do we not prolong it? How do we help them really develop and grow? So whether they play in the NFL or they go on to be a doctor, we're going to help them be successful citizens, live well-being and, and the best version of themselves in, in that in that space. And, and I think it totally can be done. And I know it is being done uh, now at what level and what the percentages say. Uh, I, I can't document that or say that, but I worry with the structure that we're providing um, that we could be limiting growth. And Marco, how, how has your design changed? You mentioned design yeah. earlier. That was a, a unique word. And you said, you know, I'm really thinking about what the design looks like sure. for when I can run a program in the future. How has it changed during this contemplative time where you've been more introspective? Like what has changed about the design? I loved even how you talked about research and Hey, at, you know, at BYU, we started to study and research what's going wrong here. Like, what have you done over the past few months? That's work, right? Like working yeah. on your design, what, what's changed? Well, so really I, I I'm a research driven individual and I don't like presenting anything to my programs or team that I don't have at least three sources of this is the best and it's validated by this and it's also validated by that. So yeah, we're going to try it. And I say that we're going to try it because this is what the research says. Now, has it been done in this context? No, but why not us? And so here we go. So I, I present it in that capacity. And uh, so I love this idea uh, of the three words and you've heard them before, I'm sure of, of fast and flat and flexible, meaning so in this world of college football, you're only given so many hours, but you hear these stories of coaches sleeping in their office and they have no time with their families. And, and I'm like, how come? And, and to me, there's a design flaw. And if you have aligned people who are truly, truly capable and fiercely competent and united within a culture, knowing that I believe that work expands the boundaries you set. Well, what if I set boundaries on, let's say, that uh, and I'll, I'll just make up an example. Let's say that we're going to work the fewest hours in college football, uh, but that means I expect a better result, not a worse result. <laughs> that also means you're going to see your family every single night. 
so what do, what does that design look? So I, I don't hear, hear people even talking about like, like that, but what if, right, you're so fast and so efficient and so clear in your organizational design and methodology, knowing that and is part of it for players and staff that you pull that off? What if the outcome says that worked, but then what if the daily experience says it's transformational? <laughs> I love that idea. And so, again, I believe work expands to the boundaries you set. I also think there's categories of work, right? So there's your competitive work, which is, man, that's where all, the most value is competitive enabling, business essential, Stephen Covey's work, right? There's compliance work and work to be eliminated. Well, I did this exercise and I did it annually. I categorized everything I was doing and everything in the program and put it in different categories, competitive, competitive enabling. And I would only do my competitive work. Well, if you're only doing work that makes a difference, those extra hours that some people stay of doing lower level work, that just means they haven't designed that work appropriately, haven't delegated appropriately, or don't have the people to give it to. And so I think, and what I've learned is organizations are perfectly designed for the results they get. This idea of randomness, sometimes injuries hit a team. Um, sometimes rarely there's things out of your control, but I would say as a baseline, I believe you design what you get. And I love the accountability that comes with that. So back to the, your question, if you have fiercely competent people, and so my idea was behind every door in our building, there was someone so fiercely capable, you would just race to go see them, you know, with a problem within their sphere, you, uh, and they were an amazing human being. So if behind every door, there's an amazing human being who's fiercely capable in their area, and then they're given the autonomy but clear expectations of what their scope and scale is and allowed to do their job with all those wheels spinning at the same time, rather than a top-down leader who's trying to control everything and micromanaging and have to be in every meeting with the offense, every meeting with the defense, people wait for him. I love trust. Trust is earned, but the speed that comes with trust is off the chart. So back to your question, the simple answer is who you surround yourself with the selection and assessment process of who you're bringing and under what principles to me drives the efficiency, the outcome and your daily experience and how much time you need to accomplish amazing things. Yeah. I think one of the most underrated things that doesn't get enough attention and focus is the formation of staffs. Oh yeah. I do not understand when I have been around sports teams to me, if I'm the head coach and look, I've never been in the arena like you have. So who am I? But I've witnessed and observed amazing cultures and the best sports organizations I've been around are relentless in the staff that they're hiring yes. and not just hiring their buddy who they played ball with back 20 years ago. And they're being very thoughtful about how many people on the staff played uh, football at a high level. How many didn't? Like they have a different perspective. How do we create a diverse staff that has different viewpoints? And I don't mean diversity in like checking a box diversity, but diversity of thought and, mm -hmm. and experience and yes. age. And like, yes. there's so much that can go into a staff, especially in your sport where you have like 10 coaches that are each running their own little program mm -hmm. within your sport. 
and they have to have the autonomy. The wide receivers are meeting together, the defensive lines meeting together. But I, I really was amazed. And you see this all the time, like uh, an offensive coordinator will leave to go be a head coach. And the next day they're hiring some, some guy. And I'm like, there's no way that they've done a full deep dive into the candidates available to get the best possible person for that role. But things go so fast yes. and you see that happen. And so as you think about putting together a staff, what are you looking for? How are you thinking yeah. about it to create a masterpiece? Yeah, I've got, I've got I number. I love two of the terms creating a masterpiece. That was one of our guiding principles. Uh, John Wooden used to use that term, make it a masterpiece. And so that was one of my guiding principles at Virginia in terms of if you start with the end in mind, what am I hopeful for? What would I like? my life to look like a masterpiece of doing good, a masterpiece of helping others. How did I do it? Oh yeah. He was a football coach, but I like the order of right. Uh, helping and serving. And then the, how anyone can pick the how, right. Um, but research driven again, uh, there's a fascinating bit of research on the creation of teams. And, and what it said was, was so clear to me and resonated so the more homogeneous the staff is, and you'd think this would be a positive, right? So the more background is similar, the more thought is similar, the more faith is similar, the more race is similar, the more, anyway, the more homogeneous, what they found was the more average performing the group was. The more diverse the group, any kind of diversity you can imagine, thought especially, right? The easy ones are what the appearances. I'm not, I'm, I'm acknowledging that, I'm talking now thought right? And, and learning preferences and et cetera. The more diversity of thought, two things happened. <laughs> Succeeding wildly or failing miserably. What wasn't happening was the middle ground, <laughs> which was the safe place of having like, right? But as soon as you went unlike, and what determined that succeeding wildly or failing miserably was respect, communication, and trust. And so this idea of every voice is valued, right? Creating a safe place where it's valued, respected, and then wrestled with to integrate and that limits the blind spots, but increases the growth spots, right? And, and that, that kind of positive friction that exists through thoughts being challenged in a new way ended up, if respected, right? ended up succeeding wildly. And, but if not respected, it failed because simply the interrelational part blew up. Yeah. So I'm, I'm smiling because <laughs> I would say relationships are based on communication, trust, and respect. Yeah, and yeah. those play against each other. If I don't respect you, <laughs> yeah. our trust isn't going to be yeah. there. If I don't trust yeah. you, it's probably because we're not communicating. If I don't communicate, it's going to impact our respect. And then the other big study that I like to reference also when it comes to teams is the Google study around psychological safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just read that again. And the importance of having psychological safety, but you hit the nail on the head. And of course, for you, it comes back to relationships. We need to have strong relationships. The other thing that I just want to jam on is, is the idea of values. So yes. I think we make the mistake of thinking that, you know, someone um, has, is, is different from me because their values are different. And even I think politics, like I always talk about this, we have this this story in our society with the two party system that mm -hmm. if you're on the left, you believe this, if you're on the right, you believe this. And if you actually listen to people and you talk to them, 
the issue isn't that we're all so different. It's that the order of our values are different. And yes. one might value security as their top value. And another might value security as their fifth value. Yes. And one might value humanity as their top value. Yeah. And the other might value humanity as their fifth value. But if we have strong relationships, communication, trust, respect, we can actually say to each other, oh, no, no, I value humanity. I'm just yeah. not going to lose my security for the humanity. Yeah. And, yes. oh, I actually value security, but I'm just not going to worry about my security if I have an opportunity to go towards humanity. And yeah. I don't know how to fix our political system. <laughs> Please, I, I, I'm not saying I do. But to me, it speaks to if we can be open about our values and if you can find people that align with your values, but still think a little differently. And by the way, the order of their values might be a little different and that might be okay as well. As long as we have shared values, then we can row the boat in the same direction. So, so you're getting right to the heart of one of my, my favorite topics that I've had extra time to think about back to this pause that I've taken. And, and, and so this idea of, of someone behind each door, that's an amazing person. What you're just describing to me is, Despite prioritical differences, the respect and admiration for someone else's viewpoint and appreciation for it, to me, is those are the kind of people I want to be around that are open-minded to listening and seeing value in a different way, and then being able to dialogue through respect in a manner that then comes up with the most comprehensive and a better solution that you could individually. And so I love that approach. And so then it's okay well, in this world of college football and here comes the early signing date and you get a job and you got to put a staff together. Who do I know? And where's the search firm? And who's going to help me and how much time? So time is the constraint, but what a mistake to, to go and put a staff together for the sake of a deadline rather than go short staff for longer, but end up with the right people. And over time, that result will yield. Unfortunately, the self-imposed, but also societal pose. Uh, um, normally a head coach lasts about three years, right? And if you're not showing significant progress, you're done. So there's this accelerated time frame. However, that can't be at the expense of the team you create. And so you have to be really intentional. Otherwise, you're basically validating and, and um, signaling that you're not going to be successful and there'll be another coach soon. And so that front end, and, and what I wanted to say is I view it more like a tryout. So for instance, at, at Virginia, um, well, I'll go to my wife first. And so we, we have three boys and, and, um, we, my wife, and we've already come up with this plan and our kids are on board. And, and so we love the outdoors and backcountry and, and being in the wilderness. And so whomever they choose to be engaged to the immediate agreement is a 10 day backcountry trip, uh, in the backwoods of Montana. And there's, it's long enough where those packs are at least 50 pounds, right? If you're going to go 10 days, they're probably 75. Everyone carries their own pack. And we're going to know after those 10 days by the uphills and the downhills and the rainstorms and the sleet. And did you catch enough fish for dinner? And who's helping around the fire and getting firewood? And we will have seen way more than a movie and dinner, right? It, like, and so the best gift we can give is a tryout of before we say yes, let's see if this is going to work um, by clear things and clear experiences that will reinforce the values that we know are most important to a lasting relationship. And so at Virginia, what I started to do when I grew up in the horse business is when kids would come on their recruiting visits and they're expecting entitlement and PowerPoints and dinners and all the stuff, right? And they would drop off their bags and they'd come to my ranch two at a time and their parents would escort them to the, the riding arena. The parents had to stay on this side of the fence. 
you couldn't get in the program without writing. And so I teach him how to get on, teach him the basics on how, and they're, they're treating the animals like they're dinosaurs. I mean, like they're going to die if they get close. And so anyway, we're riding. And then without permission, right, the kids would follow me out the far end of the arena. And we had a path cut around the property. And it'd be me, me and just two of these kids for an hour. And we'd come back and those kids, some of them act like they're coming back on a cattle drive from Amarillo, like they're, and, and others just couldn't wait to get off. But in that hour, through this kind of, not an icebreaker, but kind of an ice destroyer of complete transparency, they could see who I was. I could see who they were. And we both knew if it was going to fit or not. It's the greatest gift I could have given them or they could have given me. And man, some of the kids would hop off and they'd scratch the horse behind the ear and they'd be hugging him and others would just drop the reins and they couldn't be. And that doesn't mean that horses alone, I'm talking about just an experience of something new. And, and how did they take that on? And what did the family dynamic look like? And some moms are holding the rail with white knuckles and, and some dads are trying to coach over me in the horse industry and they don't know anything about it. And amazingly enough, back to your point about staff selection, if designed correctly, it doesn't take maybe as long as what you think, right? If you design the selection processes and activities intentionally enough, wow, there's some pretty powerful output that can come um, from a short window or experience that is, is uh, relatively predictive. And those were the kids I couldn't wait to see every day. So my, my team in this transfer portal world, there were two teams that had fewer transfers than us when I left Virginia, <laughs> two out of 131. Who were I they? Just out of curiosity. You, you know, I don't remember. I wish yeah. I wish I could. Um, I don't remember, but they were similar programs in terms of the and concept. Mm. It might have been at the academies. I don't remember for sure. Mm. Um, I attribute that to the transparency through the learning tryout, so to speak, of, of something new. And it was the greatest gift I could give them. So I wasn't selling, right? I was presenting, this is who I am. They could see um, me and my true habitat, if that's even the right word, right? And then I could see them taking on something new and then how they would interact. Some of them wouldn't get on until they made sure their buddy who they didn't even know yet got on. And then they would get on. And so I was just paying attention to all that. And I was like, oh yeah, this guy, we got to have him by creating experiences. So that's kind of back to, somewhere in that staff selection process. And so I try to create tryout or character tryouts, so to speak, for staff, in addition to competency tryouts, because one without the other is not going to be fulfilling enough. Yeah, there was a professional basketball team that I knew that when they were trying players out to see if they would draft them, they'd fly them in to the city and they would have one of their scouts pick them up, but they pick them up almost like they were a driver, right? They're in an SUV and, <laughs> yeah. and you know, that, that scout was basically seeing how they would interact with the driver. And then um, they would talk to the equipment manager and ask the equipment manager, Hey, how do they treat you? And I swear they took someone off their board who treated those people poorly. They're like, we just don't want that person in our organization. And so I think there's all kinds of creative ways you can do that. What I am fascinated by as I'm hearing you talk is just the focus on the staff, because I think, look, teams are relentless to find the five stars. Maybe at UVA, you're trying to find those great three stars, but they're always focused on getting the right players. 
but I don't see that same attention to detail with filling out their staff. So that's, that's an interesting thought. And then two other things. And I have a question for you. Um, when I was probably eight years old, we went to a dude ranch in Montana as a family. And I remember getting on a horse and we're climbing up some mountain and sure enough, that horse threw me off and I went flying. And I just remember my parents like fear, like seeing their fear. And I think they like walked me down the mountain, make sure I was okay. Put the horse aside. And I want to say I didn't ride for the next like day or two. And then the final day, I think the, the horse's name was Colt. I, I might've made that up, but in my mind it was Colt. And, uh, and I, I got back on the horse and it was something that I, I remember. I remember like overcoming that fear and, and getting back on, on the horse. And then I'll also tell you my wife, you don't, I don't have to worry about her leaving for a Mendenhall boy. Cause <laughs> if you took her out, out for 10 days in the woods, this is a woman, God bless her. I love her. She's amazing. I hope she listens to this. But when we were moving back to Washington, DC, I said, Oh, maybe we'll look at Virginia, like Arlington, Virginia, Northern Virginia. No, I'm a Maryland girl. I'm a, you know, a Northern, a Northern girl. Yeah. You took her out for 10. No, she, she's <laughs> not marrying a, a Mendenhall. She, she'll settle for Levinson and, and she'll be plenty happy. Um, but I want to go to the idea of, breaks. And I just want to start winding down with you on, sure. on this idea of a break. So Theo Epstein was the general manager of the uh, Chicago Cubs and the general mm. manager of yes. the Boston Red Sox. He was in the Red Sox for 10 years. And then he said, all right, I'm going to go to the Cubs for 10 years. And so here he is a young guy. I'm sure any major league baseball team would love to hire him, but he's actually taking a break. Um, and he, but he had this idea that you shouldn't be somewhere for more than 10 years that it was time to give the Cubs to someone else and, and go in a different direction. As you think about what you're going through in this sabbatical, are you thinking that you could hopefully be a trailblazer for others on how they're oh, yeah. thinking about, you know, taking a break? And, and like, I was thinking about this, even from a marketing standpoint, if you take away all the pluses and all the reasons you've done it, I mean, when you step away on top versus getting fired, um, which, probably going to happen at some point, some that yep. somewhere down the line, like you also have more options to choose where your next spot is. And I look at Sean McVay in the NFL and there was just a huge article about the agony that he goes through as a coach and he doesn't have kids yet, but he just got married and you can hear him talk about this sort of addiction he has to the game and the sport and the X's and O's but the realization that it, to use your word, it's not necessarily the most sustainable lifestyle. I'm curious if we're going to see more people maybe take a year off and then jump back into it. We've seen yeah. plenty of great coaches, whether it's Bill Cowher, Tony Dungy, you know, step away, or we just saw Jay Wright in basketball yeah. step away when they still seem like they could, they could coach, but to step away sort of in the middle here and mm -hmm. say, Hey, I'm going to step away for a year to think and to brainstorm and to reflect. And then, I'm going to figure out what's best for me next. Do you think there's a, a, a way to, to do that going forward for others? I'll tell you, I, I hope so. Um, I, I really do because I'm reaping the benefit of it uh, and not knowing truly what I expected or what the yield would be. But now that I'm on this end and, and here, here's uh, maybe a validation of what we're talking about. And I, I, I appreciate your depth and perception of, of what we're talking about. Uh, probably eight maybe nine, maybe 10 other head coaches, the minute that I made my decision, their text came in as I'm right behind you, encourage yet to do it. But where you, that could have been the smartest thing I've heard or seen anyone do. I wish I could do it. It was kind of like that, like, because there's fear, like what, what are, what will it look like? What will it feel like? 
but I didn't, I didn't have any head coach. Are they still in touch with you and saying, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're still, oh, yeah. they're still connected. Oh and yeah. Let's take 10 of them. Let's just say there's yep. 10. Yep. What do you think the odds are and how many of them do you think would act, will actually do it? I, I don't think any will do it. I think they'll end their coaching career and not come back is what I think will happen. But what if they have so much to add, right? What, what if, what if the people that suffer will be the young people because they didn't and, and these 10, and you would know them all, right? These are prominent. And, and it, it there's this, uh, maybe, uh, um, it's not acceptable to do what I've done. Maybe it's atypical, right? It's just unheard of, which I, I would say is fair. Right. But what if, um, if one year pause would mean 10 more teams getting help, I'm talking yearly, right? What if those that influence and what if without the pause, there's two more teams that are influenced. And, and again, to do this really well, uh, I love the idea. And in fact, it would be really cool to me if it was almost mandatory as a head coach. And if you're successful, right? I, I was at BYU for 11, left on my own terms, UVA for six. Those are relatively long tenures. Uh, back to one of the other points, and I'm going to circle back, is I do believe there's a shelf life at each place. I, I do believe that a certain leader can maximize resources, innovation, and a certain staff can go to a certain point and all things aligned. And then at some point, either through sustainment, cultural, energy, ideas, et cetera, um, that there kind of becomes uh, when growth is stalled, right? There's a great book by Jim Collins, When Growth Stalls. It, it, and it, there can kind of, even though the record might be strong, you can kind of feel culturally that there's, it's just not as vibrant maybe, right? And so I think, right, it's about that 10 year mark, man. And if you're longer than that, I have no research to back this up. This is just intuition. Uh, but sometimes it could be a little less where a given staff or a given leader at a given place with existing resources, that's about what's going to happen. And then a new coach with maybe additional commitment, et cetera, will, will elevate. And I, I try to be mindful of that at each place where I want to accelerate and grow it. Now, if you put that in the giant landscape of, okay, back to this pause idea, um, first of all, the deterrent is money. Um, so even though coaches make a lot of money to walk away from not only the existing salary that year, but the remainder. Um, but what if this is just a thought, right? What if in the world of college or college athletics, um, and mandatory doesn't seem like the right word recommended, you know, at after year 10, which means you've been successful as a head coach that, um, yeah, it's expected. For the for the not only that institution but for the young people but also that individual as a leader to care for them that that's kind of what is expected. Well, here's the crazy thing: academia they take <laughs> sabbaticals all the time. It's actually quite normal in universities. Like yeah. if I think of who takes sabbatical, I actually think of university professors. And yeah. you're sharing a campus with them, but it is a different. Oh, it's, yeah. it's a whole different ball game, but it is interesting. I'm thinking about my executive clients and I think about the investment banker or the guy on wall street. And mm -hmm. for many of them, their model is I'm going to maximize this, make as much money as I can. And then maybe I'll stop at 50 or whatever yeah. the age is or 60. Yeah. And, and I think there's something else that you're bringing up here that is really cool and unique. I wonder if you can be a model to show, mm -hmm. no, 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 you can stop at, at 50 or 55 or whatever that age is, um, or 45, your prime earning years, take a year off, 
mm-hmm. rejuvenate yourself. And then you can choose what's next. Like mm-hmm. you can choose to go back because you'll still be valuable in that space and you'll still be in your prime or you can choose to go do something completely different and ride horses all day and go fishing or, <laughs> or you could, or here's what I think could be really cool. And this is my entrepreneurial mind. Um, and then we'll, we'll finish. I promise. Uh, wow. I could see like Bronco going for, you know, to a new team, having success, building his masterpiece and then saying, Hey, I'm done after 10 years or whatever it is. And then I could see you actually coaching and mentoring others to create that for themselves and how powerful it'd be. And to your point, how much healthier our, our systems would be if people that were in their prime started to think, Hey, I can go away from a year. They won't miss me that much, but I'll still be valuable. Right? Like that's the key is like, Hey, they'll be okay. My program at UVA is still solid because I, I left it in good standing, yeah. but I'm still valuable. And, and both of those can exist. Both of those truths can exist. And, and really uh, the, this idea, um, I, I don't, I don't uh, believe that, that I'm the only one that can make a difference, right? I love improving programs and I don't want to go unless I think, man, they're ready to be sustainable, right? I love to see things continue and even improve when I leave. This isn't about, I want to see something fail just to prove I was the one that made the difference, right? I, I would love it to be where, man, it keeps going and thriving, whether I'm there or not. That, that, that's, to me, the, the, the transfer of knowledge that really becomes powerful. Um, I love the idea that, so you, you brought something up, and so this prime earning potential, et cetera, and you go to 50, and, and then I would just add the words, then what? And, and so what I've learned this year is I'm craving uh, to impact lives of young people. And I already shared with my team that at some point, whatever I choose to do after I coach again, which I'm going to do, and then maybe leaders will come to a, a leadership university in Montana and integration of horses and, and organizational design. And, you know, maybe the, I, I don't know. It's fun to talk about. But I would love maybe at the closing chapter of my life, maybe chapter three, I would view this next chapter coming as chapter two. But maybe in chapter three, there's something so impactful it makes people forget about chapter one and chapter two. They don't even remember I was a coach, but because chapter three was so cool of service and doing good and creating value for someone else, right? That that to me is is um, that's fun to talk about this idea. So many times I think we get defined by what we do, and um, so young people, so parents would come to me all the time. <laughs> And they'll introduce their kids. And this is Johnny, and he's my soccer player. And this is Emily, and right, uh, man, is she amazing at piano? And I'm saying, I'm actually not interested in what they do. I'm asked, can you introduce them again to me and say who they are? And the parents would look puzzled, you know, like, oh, well, this Johnny is so brave and so honest. Like, I wanted to hear, I wanted to hear the characteristics. I didn't want to hear the activities. And, and so we started a pretty young age defining people by activities. I was actually, and am interested in, no, I'm, I would love to be reintroduced, but the rules are you can't tell me the activities. And it was fun to see grown up struggle to like, oh, 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 oh. And then they would start again. And I was like, what a much better foundation to meet someone. Um, and I, th- I think in the world of college athletics, it's easy to define someone, uh, college football player. That will last about one to two to three years or not at all. And then there's this giant identity gap. I've watched it for 17 years. 
And almost like for the first time, now that school is done and had been paid for, here's real life with the very first contemplation of who am I? And I'm just thinking, wow, we've missed a window here that could have gone on at the same time. And, but it hasn't. Well, I can't wait to see chapters two and three. Um, (laughs) Me too. If you have any ideas, send them. (laughs) I already already am thinking. Uh, But before I let you go, I just want to acknowledge who you are. So thanks for being courageous, thoughtful, brave, intentional, introspective, you know, so many words to describe you also passionate, right? Like you still have that football coach intensity in you. Um, and I love that. So, uh, thanks for being authentically you and and sharing yourself with our community. If people want to continue to follow your journey, uh, follow what you're up to, what's the best way for them to be able to do that? Wow. So I, I currently have a podcast, um, which is shocking because I had no intention to do that. I was helping leaders one at a time, coaches, professional and college going to visit their places at their request, or they were coming out to Virginia. And I agreed to, to possibly be a guest on a podcast and ready. They were then like, whoa, 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 no, wait, what if we, what if this is a weekly thing? And so I thought about then possibly adding value to other leaders. And so there's a podcast called Head Coach University, and I'm the co-host of that. And it's going to go at least through this college football season, because uh, that's as much time as I know that I'm going to have for sure. Um, and I'm having guests on currently, which is so fun that hopefully add much like you're doing, not nearly as established, but just trying to have people on that have unique stories, talents, or perspectives that might add value to, to other people that really want to learn. That's awesome. And I've listened to podcasts. It's great. Highly recommend people check it out. I definitely listened to them in preparation for today. Uh, And before we started recording, I confirmed, Hey, you're going to be on the podcast. You're like, yep, I hope I add value. And I will tell you, you certainly have added value to me and I'm certain to the people that are listening. Um, You can follow along uh, to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Twitter is also a place I like to play at Brian Levinson. Uh, Bronco, you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? I'm not. You're off. Uh, I, I'm off. And, and my wife and I, so I, I got to add one more quick story. I know that I, this is probably like the longest thing ever. No, it's but, not. We've gone longer. We've gone yeah. longer. But... So when I became a head coach, man, did I get all kinds of foul emails and stuff after games and in every way that I could possibly get access. So I answered every one of those personally with an invitation for the person to come talk to me in person. Not one ever showed up. And so back to this Twitter thing, I, I just am, I'm probably the least social media savvy of any guest that you've ever had. So anyway, that's the backstory behind the story of why I don't. That's beautiful. You can just tweet at me and I'll tell you what Bronco's up to and I'll be, <laughs> I'll be his PR uh, going forward. Um, but thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to connecting with you. Maybe you can get me on a horse one day. Um, if the horse's name is called even better, if not, maybe we'll get my wife to go out for 10 days uh, out in the country with the Mendenhall, as long as they're not going to take her away from me. Um, but thank you so much for sharing this. This has been wonderful. So I appreciate you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What would I like my life to look like? A masterpiece of doing good. A masterpiece of helping others. How did I do it? Oh, yeah, he was a football coach. But I like the order of, right, uh, helping and serving. And then the how. Anyone can pick the how.